From our perspective, it's not just about what you want to end, what needs to stop, but what we want to build. It's not just about shutting down uh, you know, a coal plant that's killing people, polluting, and is no longer economically efficient anymore. The question is, what are you going to build in its place? The United States of America is back. President Biden has re-entered the U.S. and the Paris Agreement. Today I talked to Dr. Varun Shivram and David Livingston. They both serve as senior advisors to President Biden's special envoy for climate, John Kerry. Welcome to Planet A, a podcast on climate change. My name is Dan Johnson. I am Minister of Climate, Energy and Utilities in Denmark. In a series of conversations, I ask some of the world's leading experts, policymakers and activists how to stem climate change. We, the human species, are confronting a planetary emergency. For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. The reason I believe we need to act now is because the facts are staring us in the face. The time to answer humankind's greatest challenge is now. So this gives us the best possible shot to save the one planet we've got. There is no plan B because we do not have planet B. You're listening to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. Normally, I only have one guest in my podcast, but today we have two. Dr. Varun Shivram and David Livingston. One of them, Dr. Shivram, will join us in the middle of the program, but we hope that the technical issues will work out. And they both serve as senior advisors to President Biden's special envoy for climate, John Kerry. Dr. Shivaram has received his PhD in condensed matters physics from Oxford University, and he also holds a degree from Stanford University in engineering physics and international relations. Shivaram has since gained political experience as energy advisor to the mayor of Los Angeles and the governor of New York before he was appointed as director of the energy and climate program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Furthermore, Dr. Shivaram has also worked as the chief technology officer of Renew Power, the largest renewable energy company in India. His latest book, Taming the Sun, Innovations to Harness Solar Energy and Power the Planet, became a bestseller. David Livingston was educated as an economist at Oxford University and is one of the world's leading experts on trade and climate change. Before joining the Biden administration, he served on the presidential transition team. In that capacity, Livingston played a key role in outlining the administration's policy agenda on climate and energy issues. Livingston has gained first-hand experience with trade policy at the World Trade Organization and as the director for the U.S. Trade Representative, the American equivalent of a minister of trade. However, Livingston is also a distinguished analyst, having worked for leading U.S. think tanks such as the Atlantic Council and the Carnegie Endowment. And I will now start the conversation with David Livingston. Well, thank you so much for for taking uh, taking the time to participate in this podcast. It's an absolute pleasure. I count myself as a good friend of Denmark. Uh, And uh, I'm, I'm really, I mean, your leadership has been very inspirational for us. We were very pleased to have you at President Biden's summit, uh, you know, in April. And um, congratulations, by the way, on uh, everything that just took place with the commission, the IEA commission on uh, transitions. 
that was very exciting to see as well. Well, thank you so much for that. And we'll get back to those uh, those topics. Let's start with the U.S. priorities for, for the COP. Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, we are all relieved and happy that the, the U.S. has now re-entered the Paris Agreement. Uh, that's huge progress and, and it gives grounds for, for optimism. Uh, but maybe if you could start by outlining what are the main priorities for, for the U.S. coming into to the COP? Absolutely. Well, um, you know, obviously COP26 is uh, is a really key accelerator for what we need to do this decade. If we have any chance of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, the window for, for doing that, for keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius, 1.5 degrees C within reach is narrowing. Uh, and obviously the United States is very aligned with Denmark and the rest of Europe and other major partners and allies on the need to make COP26 a success. Um, and what's going to make it successful? It means both ambitious commitments and also concrete action this decade. Um, you know, we've been working throughout this year, Secretary Kerry, I'm in Rome right now for the G20. We've been traveling with Secretary Kerry around the world, uh, multiple different continents to urge other countries to step up at COP26 and beyond, as I know Denmark's been doing the same. Um, and so we're going to arrive in Glasgow having taken a bunch of bold steps, right? You probably saw that the the president's, uh, you know, infrastructure package has $555 billion to the clean energy transition. That's the largest single investment in the clean energy transition in in American history. Um, and uh, but but now we need to translate that into uh, effective raising of ambition among all the major economies. Um We've, we've had two convenings in the major economies forum this year. The first one in April, President Biden's Leader Summit on Climate delivered significant number of new 2030 goals and new, you know, 20, uh, long-term 2050 goals that uh, helped us get to slightly over 50% of global GDP aligned with keeping 1.5 degrees C within reach. But now out, coming out of Glasgow, we need to get well, well beyond 50% of global GDP aligned with keeping 1.5 degrees C within reach. And I think that's what we all have to keep our eyes on, is how much of the global economy, how much of global GDP is going to leave Glasgow aligned with that 1.5 degrees C trajectory. Yes, and we are far from being there now, obviously, as you also imply. Uh, I think if you add up all the different pledges that's been given from different countries, uh, we're looking at a temperature increase of probably around 2.7 degrees, which is, of course, unacceptable. So what would give you uh, reasons for optimisms, optimism with regards to, to actually it being possible for us to, to, uh, to go below 1.5? Well, I'll tell you that I think if you had said in late 2015, right after the Paris Agreement had been signed, even in that moment of great optimism, in late 2015, if you had said that only six years from then, you would have a major fossil fuel producer like the United Arab Emirates committing to net zero by 2050, that you would have China agreeing to end all overseas investment in unabated coal power, that you would have India with a target of 450 gigawatts That's 450 nuclear plants worth of renewable energy in less than 10 years time by the end of this decade. And that it would be well on its way in making progress towards that goal. That you would have 
new initiatives focused on transitioning coal to clean energy, that you would be in sight of deploying small modular reactors, advanced nuclear reactors as new clean baseload energy solutions by the end of this decade, that we'll have steel in the ground before the end of this decade. If you had said all of these different things were going to be possible, not in the late 2020s, but that this would all be happening in the year 2021, right after a global pandemic, I think the mood in those, in you know, as the dust was settling on the Paris Agreement in 2015 would have been ecstatic. Folks would have said that those are, that's much more cro- progress than we would have thought possible. So I'm heartened by the fact that though we're not there, though we're not there, Minister, we're so much closer and things move faster oftentimes than we think. So what we need to do is just keep the pressure on and create the international initiatives, create the the frameworks through which we can accelerate that action beyond this year as well. Because we're not going to get everything done in Glasgow, but we've got to get a really big head start. No, but that is very good points. Because on on one side, when you look at the science, when you when you add up the different NDCs, we are far from where we need to be. On the other side, there's all of of that progress that you mentioned. You could have also mentioned uh, the EU going to 55% reduction target. Uh, in 2030 compared to 1990, also huge progress. Imagine that we have the EU Commission now proposing a a ban on the sale of new uh, internal combustion engine cars from 2035. That's a commission co- with a, a German commissioner, a French commissioner, you know, car producing countries. That I would not have believed five years ago, obviously. So, so I totally agree with you. Uh, having said that, though, Uh, Minister, let me let me actually let, let me just jump in there to say one thing. I want to give you one other example that's going to be very close to your heart and uh, and is really, by the way, made possible by your leadership, which is the fact that even two years ago, let's say, even knowing that uh, that President Biden was likely to win the the last election, I, I don't think many people thought that there would be a goal as bold and yet at the same time as achievable as 30 gigawatts of offshore wind power by 2030. That's the goal we have in the United States, right? And so uh, I think that's really exciting. And that, again, by the way, just points to what we do when we when we pioneer and lower the cost of new technologies like offshore wind. We make possible really impressive increases in ambition on the clean energy transition. So we've got to keep doing that. And we've got to ask ourselves, what's next after offshore wind, right? Whether it's low carbon shipping or whatever the next one might be. Yeah, well, that's a great point. Uh, I mean, uh In Denmark, we we actually see that the next step will probably be also connected to offshore wind because uh, it'll be hydrogen. Uh, you know, uh, we'll take the offshore wind, make it a be an electrolyzer into hydrogen, and then transform the hydrogen into uh, liquid fuels that you can use on maritime transport or or aviation. So so that's a great point, and and I really applaud what's what's happening in the U.S. on the expansion of offshore wind capacity in 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 these months and years and. Uh, the Danish government has, has my ministries worked together with uh, the U.S. on a federal level, but also on individual state level to try and share some of the experiences that we've done within the last decades, because we were the first country in the world to to establish an offshore wind farm back in, in 1991. So actually, I think there are many, many of, of these examples. What do we then do? Acknowledging that even though a lot of positive things have happened, We're still not close to 1.5. So, do we need some sort of a mechanism to revisit ambitions? How do we make sure that we can actually, in a credible way, tell the world that after the COP, the 1.5 target is still alive? It's still within reach. 
You know, I think it it begins with helping to translate the raising of climate ambition into economic opportunity and uh, and 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 you know self interest on the part of all these different major economies. No one's going to. There's a limit, let's say, to what countries are going to do that's not perceived as in their self interest. So how do we create both collective goals and individual goals that align what we need to do on climate with countries' understanding of their own economic self-interest? I think that's what you see in India, right? Where the, the variable costs of and fluctuating unpredictable costs of fossil fuels like coal or natural gas are leading India towards that renewable target, just as much as climate is, right? I think you see it in... Uh, you know, in, in, in the EU's ambitious goals on, on, on clean hydrogen and on batteries and on the EU Battery Alliance, right? This is about capturing the, the commanding heights of the 21st century economy as much as it is about climate change. And so can we do more, perhaps coming out of the COP, to think about collective, not just climate goals and climate targets, but also clean energy goals, both in terms of deployment and in terms of innovation, can we work together as the G20 or as major economies, right, to have a certain goal for how many electric vehicles we can put on the road, for the amount of electrolyzers we can have in production and at what cost, for the number of uh, offshore wind you know, farms and, uh, and, and onshore and advanced solar and advanced wind and, you know, and batteries and battery storage that we deploy. These are all goals that I think are sometimes a little bit more politically attractive in some sense than uh, or at least a little bit easier to bring to the table and to talk about oftentimes than just the climate goals or the emissions reduction goals on their own. And so one is not a substitute for the other. Absolutely not. But they can really be complementary to t- start talking in, in this frame as well. I think that's a great point. And I also think we need to congratulate the incoming COP presidency, the, the British government, on actually bringing these topics to the table. I mean, uh, in, in in previous times... Had we had a discussion like this, uh, some people might have criticized us for saying, well, but you're talking about something that's not a part of the COP process, which is true in the sense that it's not strictly speaking a part of the negotiations that will take take place on the actual uh, Paris rulebook, for instance. That's something completely different. The NDCs, uh, of course, connected to this, but it's not something that's being negotiated. But what the British presidency has done is to say, well, we want to focus on real tangible action. So how do we get rid of coal? Boris Johnson said that, okay, well, the goal must be uh, to say that in the, the developed world, we get rid of coal in 2030 and the developing world 2040. He said, let's get rid of com- internal combustion engine cars, make an agreement on that. Let's plant some more trees. I think that's a very good approach. And 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 my question to you would be, is that also a priority for the for the US to engage in some of these more sector-specific, policy-specific talks in Glasgow? Absolutely. The United States is extremely interested in these sort of sectoral goals. And I think you'll probably see even coming out of COP26 opportunities for the U.S. to carry forward that leadership and those good ideas that we've seen from the U.K. and to bring that forward into other fora, whether it be, you know, the G20, the major economies forum and, and beyond. Let me give you a couple of examples of what we're trying to do on sectoral leadership. Um, on agriculture, right, which is uh, oftentimes thought of as a, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, intractable challenge in terms of emissions reduction, where we're emphasizing the role that innovation can play 
in creating new solutions that will help to unlock greater ambition and change the way that we think about some of the political trade-offs in, in addressing climate change in the agricultural sector. So we're going to be launching at COP26 something called the Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate, which Denmark is one of our very first partners on, uh, and we're very thankful for that. And it's all about mobilizing additional public investment in climate-smart agriculture innovation, both for mitigation and for adaptation, to make a more resilient uh, agricultural sector as in a changing climate, to make sure we can still feed uh, you know, a growing global middle class, hundreds of, you know, of millions of new mouths around the world, uh, and make sure that we could have the food production do that, but also we could do it in a lower carbon way. And so innovation is part of the, the answer there. So we want countries to invest more in, in innovation, but then we also want to bring in companies and universities and philanthropies and NGOs, civil society, to work in unique, flexible, bottom-up, public-private partnerships to help deliver on specific innovation goals that we have in the agriculture sector, like electrifying tractors and farm equipment, you know, smart photovoltaic systems over cropland that can do smart shading as well as generate electricity for, you know, for off-grid farm operations, uh, low-carbon fertilizers, drought-resistant crops for South Asia or East Africa. These are just some of the things that we're hoping to work on with Agriculture Innovation Mission for Climate. But we're also looking at some other areas as well, like uh, uh, hard-to-abate industrial sectors. We've got something that we'll be launching again at COP26 called the First Movers Coalition, with some really uh, impressive Danish companies that are leaders in this space that'll be some of our founding members. And that's focused on creating demand signals for green steel, green cement, green shipping fuels, aviation fuels, and so on. So we're, we're very committed to working on this. And uh, from our perspective, it's not just about frame, you know, talking about what you want to end, what needs to stop, what we need, you know, what we need to change, but what we want to build it's not just about shutting down, uh, you know, a coal plant that's that's killing people, polluting, and is no longer economically efficient anymore. The question is, what are you going to build in its place? How? What jobs are you going to create? We have opportunities to repower a coal plant with green ammonia or green fuels. We have an opportunity to replace a coal plant with a small modular reactor that'll create good, well-paying, uh, you know, high-quality labor and high-quality jobs. We have an opportunity to, you know transform that into a new piece of, uh, you know, in, industrial architecture of the 21st century economy. So we also, I think, want to be make sure that we're emphasizing what we want to build, what we want to create, and not just what we want to stop. I, I think that that is a very important narrative because for me at least, and I, I, I think you will agree, to talk about anti-growth is simply not understanding what kind of a world it is that we live in. That's not to say that we cannot become more energy efficient. That's actually saving something. That's a good idea. So you save energy and you save money and you become more competitive. That's a fine idea. So I don't I, I, I don't mean to say that we should just accept that, for instance, the, the energy consumption, energy intensity, intensity uh, rises, obviously not. But we live on a planet where in 2050, where we need to be carbon neutral, uh, there will be two or three billion more people than we have today. And hopefully, if all our other policy, policies work, we will have more people not living in poverty, but actually being able to afford to consume more. So to 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 imagine that we have a planet where we will uh, eat less protein or uh, fly less, I mean, again, I'm not arguing for not trying to save resources, obviously not. But the real solutions 
that's making the production green. Uh, so that's why I, I, I really like your, your narrative and your very concrete uh, examples. Now we actually have uh, Rune uh, uh, joining us, uh, also working uh, on uh, John Kerry's uh, team. Uh, welcome to, to the conversation. We're talking about what, uh, what are the U.S. priorities uh, in Glasgow, uh, what to bring. And um, we've been uh, we've been focusing on some of the the very uh, very concrete uh, outputs that we are hoping for. But I'd like to maybe also uh, then uh, turn to you and and ask, how do you think we should let the science be reflected in the outcome? Because even though it's 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 not news that we are facing a catastrophe if we don't fight climate change, still. I think it is actually fair to say that within the last couple of years, we have got new knowledge. And it, it turns out that we might reach 1.5, not in the late 2040s, but maybe in the middle of the 2030s, if we don't act now. How does the US see the need to underline the new scientific uh, knowledge? Well, well, first of all, thank you, Minister. And I appreciate you uh, inviting me and, and David as well. Uh, so, you know, we, we are very big fans of, of your leadership. Um, to, to answer your question, Secretary Kerry's been clear. In Paris, the world set a target of well below two degrees. And then in 2018, the IPCC came out with its uh, further findings that you just detailed, making it abundantly clear that two degrees is not going to cut it. And therefore, 1.5 degrees is what the United States has been clear and consistent for this entire year that we need to get the world to commit to. And uh, a majority of the world by GDP is now committed to pledges aligning with 1.5 degrees C, but the path there is treacherous. Um, Secretary Kerry, you know, when we talk about energy, and, and, and that's what, what I focus on, clean energy, Secretary Kerry has said there are two main imperatives in this decade, between now and 2030. The first imperative is to deploy as fast as we can all the technologies we have available. And that includes, for example, quadrupling our renewable energy deployment around the world to more than one terawatt by 2030, quadrupling investment to four trillion dollars a year. On the other hand, an equally important imperative in this decade to enable net zero by 2050, which is what we need to keep 1.5 alive, is to develop the technologies of the future, to bring them to commercial tipping points in this decade. It's equally important because the net zero by 2050 target will be composed in equal proportions of emissions reductions from today's mature technologies, 50%, and emissions reductions from technologies that aren't ready for market today, the other 50%. And that other 50% is lagging far behind today. And that's that's one of the things that we focus so much on in the innovation space. That's a, a, a very, very important point that It's not either we focus on the the long-term strategies or we focus on what to do now. We need to do both, obviously. There's so many low-hanging fruits. Deployment of more renewable technology is definitely one of them, but also energy efficiency is one that's often overlooked, which is sad because it's also one of the ways to which we can save a lot of energy whilst creating jobs, whilst giving ordinary households Uh, more money between the hands because the heating bills are smaller, which is, you probably followed what's going on in Europe in, in these uh, these weeks. A very important point. But can I ask you, when you talk about the technologies of the future, the ones that we don't have yet, or at least they're not at a scale where we can really deploy them yet, 
Is that direct air capture? What, what, what exactly are you thinking about? Well, uh, I'll take this opportunity to highlight an initiative that Secretary Kerry is going to launch at COP26, which focuses on the sectors where these technology needs are concentrated, the hard to abate sectors. See, in sectors like power, we largely have the technologies we need to decarbonize power. One of the technologies we still have left to develop at scale is long duration energy storage, but we have cheap renewables, we already have cheap short duration energy storage, and we have cheap transmission technology. Going forward, in other sectors, particularly long distance transportation and heavy industry, so steel, cement, aluminum, shipping, trucking, aviation, chemicals, in all of these sectors, as well as direct air capture, uh, Secretary Kerry is launching a coalition called the First Movers Coalition, a set of companies that will come together at COP26 and say, we believe that innovation is so critical and concentrated in these sectors that we will make purchasing commitments for technologies that aren't at scale today. This decade, we will commit 10% of our steel production, uh, steel consumption, for example, for a major automaker or 5% of our shipping um, will be done on zero emissions vessels running on zero emissions fuels. These fuels today exist at no commercial scale. Many of them will use green hydrogen, for example. They'll use captured carbon dioxide to make synthetic fuels. Um, but in order for us to decarbonize, again, that 50% that we don't really have the technologies available today, we have to create those early markets and invest in the research and development. That's why I'm thrilled that we work so closely with Denmark. With Denmark's leadership, we have the shipping technology mission. Um, and with the leadership of Danish companies, um, we have, for example, Maersk, uh, the, the world's biggest shipper that has joined publicly the First Movers Coalition and made the shipping commitment. So Secretary Kerry is very optimistic that the private sector's leadership in concert with public sector initiatives and leadership are going to help us to bring these technologies uh, to market this decade. You're making some great points there, and 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 maybe also back to to, to you, David, uh, to comment on how do we make sure that we make the the political framework to make these things happen. It's great an initiative that the that Secretary Kerry is is leading and will be uh, announcing in in, in Glasgow. Uh, but but it needs to be followed up by political. Uh, Uh, initiatives also in in different individual countries and groups of countries like the EU because at least that's the Danish experience that uh, the market will drive some of this but it won't drive it all and definitely not uh, on a on a short and medium long term we need regulation to make things possible to get rid of the regulatory barriers we also need in the most cases uh, subsidies And we need policies like the one you mentioned, where you have certainty that you can actually uh, there'll be a demand for your product, either by a government or by a, a a company. So, David, what's your thoughts on how to make sure that this is then not just nice words on a piece of paper or some single very progressive companies that are doing this, but that it will happen on a broad scale? It's a great question, and it's a question, Minister, that so many are grappling with, right? In capitals. Uh, Uh, as different from you know from um, from Berlin to Bratislava to uh, you, you know to, to Benin and, and Bangladesh and all over the world you know a, a lot of different countries are grappling with this and it comes down to taking care of your people because at the end of the day you know most of us still live in democracies right and this is only going to happen on the back of democratic buy-in into the energy transition 
and showing folks that this is not just something we must do. This is something that can actually lead us to a more prosperous and a and a healthier uh, society with greater well-being. And so what does that look like? You know, number one, it's about figuring out with it's about managing the transition. The transition's not the flick of a switch. We see that we see again and again evidence of that. That's not to say that the transition is not necessary. It's not to say also that the, the transition is not going to lead us to a much better place, but it has to be managed. It has to be managed in terms of protecting the global economy from, you know, from shocks or volatility. It has to be managed in terms also of creating that new compact, right, between citizen and government, that new compact between corporation and labor in the energy transition to make sure that those quality jobs are created. And then it also has to do with helping to paint the picture, I think, in new and creative ways of what we mean when we talk about the opportunities that exist in clean energy, that exist in energy efficiency. And again, it goes down to, I think, getting people excited, not just about what we're reducing, but what we're going to build. We should remember that uh, when you switch from an internal combustion engine vehicle to a Tesla, that's increasing energy efficiency in the transport sector. And that's, and that's a really exciting and sexy way of increasing energy efficiency, right? It's not just about using less. It's about using technologies that happen to be more energy efficient, but also just happen to be better and more fun and more interesting and more dynamic. There are, you know, aspects of having a, you know, a, a, a integrated solar system and battery on your home that I just got one for my mother in California because she lives in an area that's very exposed to wildfires. She absolutely loves checking every day and seeing how much electricity she's generating, how much is stored in her battery, how much she can sell back to the grid, et cetera, right? There's an element of agency and buy-in here that's actually much better than just receiving whatever the grid mix is from your utility. And, and, and so there's some excitement there. And so I think it, you know, part of it's on the consumer side, painting that picture of what the exciting opportunities are in the switch to a cleaner grid, a cleaner energy mix and greener products, right? Having low carbon concrete or even carbon negative concrete being used to build your next house in the future and why that's exciting. But it's also about, again, those at a more structural level, those compacts between labor and government and the corporate sector, or the private sector. And that's going to be really critical to making sure that this, this energy transition is managed well and politically durable and sustainable. Oh, I totally, I totally agree with that. Now, uh, I, I want to to ask you before we we end this uh, this conversation about another very, very important uh, topic that will definitely be on the table in in Glasgow, and that many will consider, myself included, as as just as important as the discussion on on the reduction uh, pledges, because uh, we won't have uh, one without the other, and that is, of course, finance. Now, let me start by. Uh, acknowledging and applauding uh, President Biden's new pledge to, I think, double uh, the amount of, of money for climate aid. That's that's fantastic news. And it brings us uh, much closer to, to the target of 100 billion. But 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 to be honest, I don't know if you will use as, as strong language as, as I will now, but but I think it's quite embarrassing that for, for years now, we haven't, as a part of the, the, the richer countries on this planet, collectively managed to pay the $100 billion a year that we agreed back in Copenhagen in 2009. So could one of you maybe uh, speak to, to that point? Let me briefly touch on it at the get-go, and then I'll see if Varun would like to add anything. You know, obviously, we all need to be mobilizing additional finance towards climate and towards the energy transition. 
as you noted, the U.S. will arrive in Glasgow with President Biden having announced that he's doubling climate finance at the U.N. General Assembly shortly ago. But I also want to point out that that's a doubling of a doubling. President Biden began the administration with a target to, to double U.S. climate finance, and then he doubled again uh, that goal at, 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 at uh, the U.N. General Assembly. And I want to point out as well that, that so that's a quadrupling. And that's a quadrupling not from Trump administration levels of climate finance. That's a quadrupling from the where we left off in the Obama administration in terms of the U.S. climate finance goal. Now, of course, that we all need to be doing more. That's evident and clear. But a new report shows that we're going to arrive in Glasgow with, uh, you know, on a trajectory to reach that 100 billion target by 2023 uh, and with significant pro likely growth. In, uh, in overall climate finance in the years after that. So what's the challenge now? The challenge now is making sure that this is not a, just a continuous back and forth about what can country budgets do on a year by year basis with all the fluctuations of uh, political cycles. It's about broadening and about diversifying and about regularizing that climate finance into the fabric of the global economy, public money and private money being mobilized so that it becomes a feature and not, uh, you know, and not some 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 special annual element of our global economy, and so that's why we're in addition to what President Biden has done in terms of quadrupling, uh, you know, U.S. climate finance goal. That's why we're working so hard with banks, with sovereign wealth funds around the world, with private equity firms, with public pensions around the world to make sure that the the money that governments do put in that can help to de-risk some of these attractive clean energy investments crowds in additional capital because we want you know every uh you know every danish krona that's spent every us dollar that's spent to to mean that we're opening the floodgates for even more private capital to come in and to be instead you know instead of to be going into into unabated oil and gas and coal that it's crowding into some of these clean energy investments we need um and 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 so i'll just you know emphasize that we're not going to do this with public money alone and we need to use that public money in a really intelligent way to catalyze that additional investment. I'm not sure if Varun wants to add anything to that, perhaps. Can I just, uh, before before I give the, the word to you, Varun, say that I think you're touching on a very important point. First of all, uh, it's not a hundred billion that we need. We need trillions. So the hundred billion is first and foremost to show the commitment and to live up to what was promised. But the second point that um, we really need to use the public money wisely so that they will help generate more investments because the paradox is that there's actually a lot of money out there on the market looking for places to invest in green transformation. Now, de-risking investments is going to be, I think, a key to that and public money can do that. A different and maybe a little bit more controversial question, I don't know, but I'd like to hear your opinion on it is, so how much of the public grants should be paid into adaptation finance instead of financing mitigation? Because... Right now, there's not a balance. I think it's 17 percent or something like that of the of the money allocated that's going to adaptation, and that's simply not enough. In Denmark, we've decided to to give 60 percent of our grants to adaptation. Uh, now, if that's the right number, and others might not want to go that high, I don't. I, and that might not be necessary. I don't know, but I, I definitely can see that we don't have a a, a balance now. Uh, so, Varun, what what what's your what's your opinion on that? Look, you and you and David, Minister, have, have made excellent points. I'll just add a couple quick things. Um, first, 
Agreed. The scale of this challenge far exceeds the $100 billion. So let's let's not misclassify the problem. This is a $4 trillion a year requirement for clean energy uh, by 2030. $100 billion is the drop in the bucket. Um, so second, um, uh, let's let's think about the, the most effective ways to, to support the clean energy and net zero transition in each of the partner countries, particularly emerging economies that we work with. Um, one of the most effective things you can do is to help to improve the enabling environment. For example, the U.S.-India Agenda 2030 partnership, and there's a lot of great partnership between Denmark and India, focuses on helping to create the conditions on the ground to mobilize the finance. Because India is already a growing investment destination, it will be a red hot investment destination if there is sanctity of the contracts in India. If uh, if a power purchase agreement that's signed uh, for renewable energy is, is honored 100% of the time. And so working on providing technical assistance to achieve this is one major way that we can accelerate financial flows. Another critical way to spend the dollars very, very effectively is to spend the dollars in high level, high leverage areas such as innovation. A dollar that goes toward demonstrating a new technology or bring down the cost of a critical technology is gonna go much farther than a dollar that is spent on doing something that's not opening a new market or developing a new technology. Ultimately, this is a commercial problem. And the commercial problem will be solved when the technologies are cheap enough and the countries have the enabling environment that is secure enough for investors to want to invest trillions of dollars. Um, and the last thing I'll say is the highest leverage dollar that the United States, for example, can spend is a dollar on developing the technologies of the future. That's why the Department of Energy has launched its Energy Earthshots initiative to drive down the cost of long duration storage by 90 percent this decade or clean hydrogen by 80 percent this decade. There is no more effective thing the United States can do than to develop the cheap technologies. Of the future. Gentlemen, um, thank you so much for this fascinating uh conversation and and can i also just finish by saying that within the last couple of months i i've been to to several uh, preparatory meetings uh, coming up to to the cop where your boss uh, john Kerry has been and he's doing an excellent work he's he's working tirelessly on 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 this and he's traveling the world and he's uh, you wouldn't think that he's been at this and, and on this agenda for decades because how can he still have that much energy but but <laughs> but he really does and, and let us all just remember that the only reason why the discussions that we have now are even relevant, why, why it's even realistic to talk about a positive outcome in Glasgow and even realistic to talk about the COP having any meeting in the world is because the U.S. is back. So so, so thank you so much for, uh, for that. And uh, I hope to see you uh, at uh, Chaotic probably, uh, but that's also uh, part of the charm uh, meeting in in Glasgow. And and thank you so much also for the kind words on on our efforts uh, here in, in Denmark. We are a small country, but we're trying to do to do our best. Well, Minister, thank you. Let me just say uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Let's continue this conversation together in Glasgow. We look forward to seeing you there. And you're absolutely right. Secretary Kerry is tireless. Uh, he doesn't need to be doing this. He could be much more comfortable, but he is uh, his heart, mind, and soul is in this effort. Um, and indeed, not only the U.S. is back, but the U.S. is back working with our friends and our partners and our allies like Denmark. So it, the arc of history is long, as they say, but if we're working together, we can slowly bend that arc in a more positive direction. That's what we're going to do in Glasgow. We look forward to seeing you there again, continuing this conversation. 
Would look forward to seeing you, Minister. Thank you for the invitation. Couldn't say it better than David. Thank you so much. You've listened to Planet A, a podcast on climate change and what to do about it. If you want to know more about the climate policies of Denmark, you can follow my ministry, the Danish Ministry of Climate, Energy and Utilities, on social media platforms such as Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.